I will acknowledge that governance work, at least on the face of it, can sound not very sexy. It doesn't necessarily sound like exciting work. It sounds wonky and bureaucratic. But um, anyone who has had to think about how to accomplish uh, important work of an institution around through uh, difficult and Byzantine governance structures knows that uh, it is a really important, frankly, legacy to leave an institution to develop the governance structures and the culture that um, will serve the institution in what I suspect is going to be a continuing atmosphere of pretty rapid change. Hello. Welcome to season two of Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. The challenges facing colleges and universities short term and in the years to come are immense. And yet many institutions are adapting in surprising and inspiring ways. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with higher education thought leaders about the academic transformation that is underway. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, futurists, and others who are thinking about and experimenting with new approaches. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share with your colleagues and friends so they can join the conversation too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of An Ingenious You where we consider the most urgent and the most provocative topics that are reshaping higher education. And we have the opportunity to speak with higher ed's most creative and visionary leaders. I'm joined for this episode by Dr. Susan Campbell Baldrich, longtime academic. Susan has spent more than 25 years on the faculty at Middlebury College and also in a variety of administrative roles, including most recently as executive vice president and provost. Susan is now a strategic consultant who works with educational institutions to help them develop a strategy and execute change. And she is co-author of the Johns Hopkins University Press 2020 book that has received so much attention uh, around the country, the College Stress Test, Tracking Institutional Futures Across a Crowded Market. Susan, welcome to the Ingenious community. Thank you, Melissa, it's lovely to be here. Now, we like to start our conversations by finding out a little something about the professional journey of our interviewees, perhaps something that's not, not necessarily on your CV or resume, so to speak. So can you tell us something about yourself, your professional journey? Is there a thread or two that you can pull across your professional life to help us understand a little bit about who you are? Well, let's see. So you, you described the major milestones. Uh, I would say if there's a thread that might help to connect some of the different things I've done, it's that I have a real fascination uh, with and respect for systems and how they work. And I am especially fascinated by higher education as a system. 
Um, colleges and universities are complex places with lots and lots of moving parts and sometimes very particular cultures that influence how those parts work together. And I am endlessly interested in helping to figure out how to make those parts work better together. Um, I like that in my professional life. I like it in my personal life too. I'm a quilter. So uh, there's a way in which there's maybe a, a thread, no pun intended there, uh, you know, being able to put disparate parts together to uh, form a, a more pleasing outcome uh, might be the might be the common thread there. I wondered if you were a quilter because I see uh, the beautiful art on the uh, the quilted art on your wall behind you and uh, I'm a weaver so we have we and I often say the same thing in describing weaving and how you never quite know what the whole is going to look like until you get until you get done and isn't that isn't that somewhat similar to the work of change in higher education? It is. It is absolutely the same. And I also think uh, there's this interesting combination in these various crafts that you and I engage in, and also in the work of higher ed, a, a kind of tension, but also a complementarity between creativity on the one hand and uh, kind of empirical evidence and data on the other, and being able to bring those things together. Uh, to achieve the, the desired ends, that's, uh, that's my sweet spot. And boy, that's, that's very needed today more than ever. And I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned creativity because I don't think creativity gets enough attention um, mm -hmm. in the discussion that uh, is taking place in terms of uh, what's needed in higher ed today. So we may come back to that, but I wanna jump in and ask you some questions about your book. The College Stress Test, as I mentioned, has in fact received a lot of attention at many levels. And so I'm curious why you and your co-authors wrote it and whether you were surprised at all by the level of response that the book has received. Well, let's start with why we wrote it. Um, we were in a really practical way taking a model that my co-authors Bob Zemsky and Susan Shaman had already uh, developed in a fairly similar way to apply to law schools actually. And as the three of us were looking at the changing landscape in higher ed, we realized there was an opportunity to think about developing a way of thinking about the distribution of risk across undergraduate institutions more broadly, not just law schools uh, within the United States. Um, so we were able to take, um, you know, IPEDS data, commonly available data that all schools themselves submit and determine a small number. And the goal was small, uh, you know, four maximum variables that all institutions would report that might help us start to describe what that distribution of risk looks like. Um, we were motivated by the same things everyone else was noticing, right? Certainly lots of pieces in the Chronicle and inside higher ed about, uh, you know, was the bust in higher ed on its way? Uh, you know, Clayton Christensen uh, had made the prediction that 50% of schools and colleges would be closed within a decade. Uh, so we were really trying to figure out, well, beyond those headlines, what really is the distribution of risk and who really should be most concerned? And so that was really what motivated us. Mm. And were you surprised by the, by the outpouring of interest and 
response or or not maybe well i'm um i'm not sure we were surprised by the time the book came out the book came out in february of 2020 uh <laughs> particularly interesting moment um, for all of us just before the world shut down. But by then we already had a sense that the questions we were asking and the tools we were trying to offer were very timely. We knew that it was timely. Uh, that said, one never knows. There are lots and lots of books that appear about higher ed in any given year. And so certainly we've been pleased with the response. So can you briefly explain the market stress test score and what goes into it? Sure, um, there's a lot of detail that I won't go into here, but just to give people a general sense, um, as I said, what we were trying to do was to identify a very small number of variables that we could apply using the data we had available to us to look at risk in different markets of higher ed across the country. So we looked at four-year privates, four-year publics and two-year publics, community colleges. And the, the general categories of variables were things like first-year enrollments, um, retention rate uh, for, for first-year to second-year, um, uh, net tuition revenue, uh, that is how much money schools are bringing in minus the amount of financial aid they give out to bring students along. Um, looking at endowments, looking at state appropriations. So depend, so different variables applied to different schools depending on what type of school they were. But we were not only looking at those variables. There are some other folks who have created models that use variables like that to assess risk. What we wanted to do is look at change over time. And to my mind, in some ways, this is the most um, important, if you will, contribution, I think, of this model is that we were looking at change over time in each of those variables over, in our case, an eight-year period, because that was the data set we had access to. Um, and the, the very high-level upshot of what we found is that risk is greatest, not only when schools have more negative values on those various variables, but more importantly, when the trend in those variables is in the negative direction. Mm. And while that might sound obvious, it is remarkable to me, the number of institutions and leaders who don't really pay attention to those trends. Mm. Uh, they don't recognize often until those trends are well-established five, six years old, that maybe they need to uh, raise a flag and think about addressing some of that risk. So can I ask you to unpack that just a little bit more? So if I'm a, let's say I'm a new president and I am trying to get a sense uh, about my campus's risk, looking at, I've, I just bought your book, I'm looking at these variables, I'm trying to make sense of some of the trends, um, are there are there uh, some that you think are more significant than others, or can you give an example of of one that would be really important for me to look at right at the outset? Sure. So um, let's take both enrollment and retention rate because those are numbers that almost everybody understands what mm -hmm. they. So we know demographically that the number of students attending higher ed has been dropping and is likely to continue to drop for some period of time. 
But on any given campus, the first year enrollment numbers over say the last decade have probably hopped up and down and you know they've looked different from year to year. At the same time, the retention rate um, on average across the country is around 70%. So three out of every 10 students on any given campus leave after their first year on average. If I'm a president, one of the first things I ought to be doing is not just looking at this year's numbers, did we make our tuition goal or our enrollment goals, not just looking at last year's and are this year's better than last year's, but really looking at a long-term trend. Where are we this year relative to 10 years ago, five years ago, and, and, and uh, ignoring the year-to-year -year bumps, what is the overall trend line that direction. And if the trend is generally down, I need to sit up and take notice. And I need to think about whether my institution is sized and organized appropriately for the students I have, not the students I want. And I will say that the reason I always bring up retention rate is because uh, as someone once said, uh, the cheapest student to get is the one you already have. If you are losing 30% or more in some cases of your students after their first year, that is uh, both you know, human energy, but also money out the door. And uh, institutions can really significantly impact retention rate with the resources usually that they have if they can just align them and, and give them purpose. Mm, boy, those are great, great examples. and. Uh and good advice that is accessible to just about anybody um, in a leadership role. So thank you for that. Um, from your, from your uh, research, did you find any uh, types of institutions that are at particular risk and uh, do they tend to serve a, a certain type of student or, or not? Yes. So, I mean, there are a number of factors. In general, we found that very small schools say those under a thousand students tend to be uh, predominantly in those higher risk categories. Uh, and that makes sense. The work we do in higher ed is uh, hard to scale. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, a, an anthropology department, if one is going to have one, needs a certain number of faculty just to offer a responsible curriculum, no matter how many anthropology students one, <laughs> one has. And so, these are the kinds of things that lead even small institutions to have pretty robust structures and staffing that can be very hard to sustain when finances get tight. So those small institutions are often at risk. Rural institutions are also at risk. We know most college students go to school within something like 300-ish miles of where they live on average, and uh, if you are in a rural area, that means you have fewer students who see you as the kind of convenient local option uh, compared to say a much more urban um, school in a heavily populated area. Non-selective institutions in our analysis also turned out to be at greater risk. Um, and I'll just back up for a minute and say, I think, this is reflective of a general trend we not only pointed to in the book, but we have seen in the time since. 
which is right now in higher ed, the big and the rich are getting bigger and richer and the small and the poor are getting smaller and poorer, um, afraid. And uh, that means that those smaller and less resource uh, healthy institutions are really the ones that we have to worry about. Yeah, boy, that's a, that's a very important point. The bifurcation of the higher ed industry, right? And, uh, and will probably only accelerate. So, and I, I wanna come back to that in a minute, but I also, I, I do wanna ask you if anything surprised you about your findings. So when you were done, is there anything that made you step back and say, oh gosh, I didn't, I didn't expect that or that took a little bit of a different twist? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, one speaks to your last question, which is that one of the groups of students that is most likely to be served by institutions that fell into our risk categories, well, actually two groups are uh, black students and um, low income students. And um, on some level, maybe that's not surprising, but um, the fact that the, that the data were as clear as they were um, was deeply concerning. Um, what happens uh, for those students when their institutions are not only less resource wealthy, but maybe at risk of closing? Um, are those students going to be well served? And what does the rest of the higher ed market need to do or think about in order to be responsive uh, for those students? That, that felt um, surprising in a worrying way. Yeah. The other thing maybe that was surprising, and again, I suppose this is worrying too, is the way in which the pattern of findings within institutions sometimes seemed so obviously a portrait of challenge and risk. And yet it didn't appear in some cases that anyone was sitting up and taking notice. Um, so um, one of the things we do in the book is we show people um, for given institutions, we don't name most institutions except with permission, but um, we show a series of graphs that chart the trends for the four variables that apply to assessing risk at that institution. So there is very much a visual picture of risk to be looked at. And, and by the way, the book provides all the tools any institution needs for doing these calculations. Um, and it was not at all uncommon to see, especially among the, the, the schools at greater risk, a pattern where enrollments were dropping and net tuition revenue was also dropping, but more than the enrollments were dropping. So what that means is, in many cases, institutions were increasing the discount rate. So in an effort, to make their numbers, um, schools will often start to offer additional discounts to students, additional financial aid. You can come for this much less tuition. Well, that serves a short-term goal. It can allow schools to, as I said, make their numbers. But the challenge with that is you now have to serve all of those students with less revenue per student than you've had in the past and the cycle 
that that pattern can create within institutions can become self-reinforcing. And as I said, what was surprising is how many institutions showed patterns like that in a way that just in kind of casually looking for information about some of the schools that we could see that had that pattern um, didn't seem to be on anyone's radar. That's Wow. Well, and your book, as you said, came out right on the cusp of the pandemic. Um, and I'm, I'm curious about your, your thoughts about whether the last 12 months change any of your thinking in terms of your findings. Um, you know, how has the, the COVID outbreak shifted your outlook, if at all, on the financial health of higher education. In your book, you say that 10%, I believe, of colleges face severe risk. I, I'll tell you, when I read that, I gasped. I thought, wow, 10%, that's, that's a big chunk of the higher ed uh, industry landscape in our country. So, you know, does the pandemic make that worse or is it going to make it worse? I'm, you know, all, all of what you've just said would suggest that we're sort of teed up for uh, a rough go the next few years. Right, well, a couple of things to say. First of all, I need to say, I am dispositionally an optimist, despite everything I have just said about the landscape of education. So um, that 10% is in the context of also acknowledging perhaps 60% of schools are likely to, you know, fare the next several decades roughly un unfettered by these kinds of challenges. Um, and maybe another 30% kind of in what we call the bound to struggle category, um, you know, maybe not likely to close their doors, but, but certainly facing some challenges that they'll have to deal with. So that 10% number is of course, deeply concerning, one in 10. Um, to be clear, we don't have a crystal ball and I would never argue that because an institution is at great risk, that means they will necessarily close their doors. Although we know some will. In fact, Mills College is the most recent uh, case I've heard of out in Northern California to have announced that they'll be closing their doors, a small school um, that has struggled for quite a while. Um, the pandemic has certainly, anyone who is associated with higher ed knows that almost everyone's budget took an enormous hit over the last year for a variety of reasons. So there were all kinds of resources that schools had to stand up very quickly to respond to this reality, whether it was testing on campus or facilitating the kind of uh, distance learning that suddenly had to be uh, provided, um, any number of those kinds of resources. For schools, and many of them do, that make money um, from their room and board, sending students home for a semester also meant a financial hit. So let's imagine that we're talking about a school that was perhaps likely to be facing some challenges, might have been in our, our at least our somewhat some risk category, if not the highest risk category. Now add to that a severely challenging budget year. Oh, and uh, if they have an endowment, an endowment that's hopping around in ways that feel unpredictable and uh, hard to gauge, um, all of that ups the ante on the urgency of 
acknowledging and dealing with the risk. Um, it doesn't mean most schools are not even capable of just closing their doors from one day to the next. That's not typically how this plays out. Often it is a long protracted period of financial challenge that precedes a closure. But um, what I am seeing and hearing from leaders in higher ed is a lot of concern about what the longer term impact is of this budget hit from this year, combined with the uncertainty they are facing about their enrollments and their financial aid budgets. Um, so that's, it's, as I said, it's not that it changed the fundamentals of how we were assessing risk. I think it's increased the urgency of the question. If we learned anything from the rapid deep dive into online learning that happened this spring at our college campuses around the world, it is this, high quality, effective remote learning requires a lot more than just the technology. If you want to create rich and robust remote learning experiences, it starts with understanding how people learn and how to design learning environments and how best to use technological innovation to bring about these kinds of experiences. Institutions of all types and sizes are now looking for digital learning professionals who know how to use learning and curricular design principles, technological tools and innovation, and analytics to create robust and rich learning experiences for their students. This is the future of learning, and the future is now. The Bay Path University newly launched Master of Science in Learning Design and Technology was created for just this purpose. The degree prepares professionals for what Inside Higher Ed recently called Higher Ed's hottest career field. In addition to learning about all of the breakthroughs in this new teaching and learning field, you will also gain hands-on experience designing innovative learning projects for real-time college classes and faculty. Upon graduation, you'll be highly marketable and ready to join this exciting new career field. The program is entirely online and can be completed in less than two years. For more information, visit the Bay Path University website at baypath.edu LDT. Applications are now being accepted for the October start. If you want to design the future of learning, take the next step. Visit our website today, baypath.edu LDT. you don't have a crystal ball, but I do have to ask you if you have any thoughts about if and when uh, we might get back to some semblance of normal. And I hate to even use that word normal, because I don't know that we'll ever be normal again. What, uh, I'm not even sure what that means. But do you have any thoughts about uh, a return to? Well, I mean, it depends a little bit on what normal means. If normal means students on campus and faculty teaching them uh, for many institutions, that is their normal. I think many institutions will be right back there in the fall. Um, and I'm talking to folks who say, we're making those announcements now, we are planning on it, we've got the vaccinations either uh, done or lined up so that we feel confident we can do that. And that's terrific um, because 
um, you know, we want students to have access to the kinds of education that they're selecting, right? And, and many students didn't have that access over the last year. Um, the longer term normal, um, I'm not sure that it's going to look exactly the same. And I don't mean that in a way of kind of foreboding or, um, you know, like I'm predicting some dystopian future. Um, I do know that many institutions, including some with whom I work, are actively asking the question, what is it we learned over the last year? And which of these things that we learned or we tried are things that we actually think might be better, um, be worth keeping around either as an option or as a normal way of doing things. And I find that enormously encouraging. I think that there is, and here's my optimistic self coming out. I think there is a way in which the experiences of the last year, horrific and tragic as they have been, may also have the salutary effect of giving people some experience with lived change at institutions that most institutions hadn't really tackled over the last 30 years. Most people on our campuses had lived and worked in roughly the same kinds of circumstances from year to year. And I think this, I know this has opened the eyes of some people to options they would have considered um, unacceptable, less than, um, or simply not the way we do things, if you will. Um, so it will be really interesting to see what institutions choose to hang on to. Mm, that's a really, really good point. So, um... In the few minutes we have left, I wanna switch gears here and uh, talk about your strategic consulting work uh, with colleges and universities. Uh, I'm curious if you have a, an opinion about um, the sorts of tools that institutions should have in their arsenal right now in particular. Well, so let's go back to uh, a point I was making earlier about uh, creativity and uh, data. <laughs> um, I think both of those are really important tools. So um, certainly for assessing risk the way we did in the book, um, one needs to have access to some good and reliable data, albeit fairly straightforward. Um, I think every institution, every leader needs to be well acquainted with their own data and information and really to have um, confidence in what those data are telling them. I'm amazed at the number of schools that don't have that, uh, leaders that don't pay attention to that. Some of that may be their, that is they don't come from a data background, um, but there are certainly lots of talented people who can help provide that insight. And I think it's crucial. At the same time though, um, higher ed is also, it's a people business. Um, our institutions are fueled by both the people we serve and the people that provide that service. and so there's another set of tools that really are about leveraging those smart and creative and talented and committed people to do what the institution needs. Now I say that those are great tools, but um, there can be uh, challenges to leveraging those tools in, in an ideal way. Um, 
I mean, certainly I would say, um, as I said, there, there are few institutions that have real lived experience with significant change. So the fact that, um, you know, as one colleague years ago said to me when we were uh, two years into a slogging effort, <laughs> relatively small curricular change at my own institution said to me, Susan, this is all happening with baffling speed. Uh, <laughs> um, and I think that really speaks to that lack of experience with real change. I mean, you know, humans are resistant to change in general and higher ed is, I think, especially so. But um, I think smart leaders can figure out how to leverage their culture, leverage their people, leverage their data uh, in order to help accomplish that change. I will point to one other thing, by the way, which we haven't talked about, which is governance. Oh. I'm, first of all, fascinated by governance structures. Um, and while there are certain aspects of governance that are pretty consistent across institutions of higher ed, there are also very particular differences. Uh, and any leader would be wise, especially relative new leaders at an institution, wise to study their governance processes, their structures, their cultures, their habits. Um, because ultimately those are the kinds of factors that can facilitate in an ideal world, the change institutions need, but they can also really get in the way, um, especially if, inst if institutional leaders are not aware of, of what those structures and potential hindrances might be. Oh, that's such a good point. And you know, I have heard uh, more than a few leaders, new leaders, provosts and presidents say that they thought the governance structure and the culture, talking about the faculty culture, was one thing when they went through the interview process and then three months in, they discovered that there was this, uh, I've heard people call it a shadow culture, that there's this whole other way of being and working and functioning that uh, they were very surprised to discover. Now you're a social psychologist, so <laughs> I, I'm not surprised that, that this is something that's on your radar, but how, how do you, is there a way to, uh, are there some clues or uh, ways to figure this out, particularly if you're in a job search and you're trying to get a sense as to, you know, is this a place that I could, uh, that I could do well in and thrive in? Right. Well, let's see. I mean, job searches are an interesting uh, scenario in which to try to uh, get that kind of information because, um, it's, you know, it's in the interest of institutions to try to set aside, perhaps, if not actively hide, um, some of the evidence of the hardest parts of those kinds of cultures. But um, I believe in reading handbooks. <laughs> and I know that that's not the kind of fun bedtime reading that most people would be interested in. But minimally knowing what the what the legislation, if you will, says about how things are supposed to happen is a start. I would, if I were, say, a candidate or even a relatively new leader at an institution, I would be asking people to tell me stories. Mm. Tell me a story about the last time the institution made a really significant curricular change. How did that happen? Who made the decisions? Uh, who, who led that change? Mm. Uh, how, how fraught was it or not? 
Um, what happened the last time the institution decided to change the benefits package? Um, <laughs> who made those decisions? Who was involved? Who, who had a say? Um, and, and the stories might be cautionary tales or they might be success stories, but getting starting to hear about the way things have actually happened and then thinking about that in the context of what handbooks say is supposed to happen, I think can start to give one a sense of, as you say, what's the, what's the overt culture? And if there's a shadow culture, what does that shadow culture look like? But, but look, I mean, in, across institutions, regardless of what those stories are, um, you know, institutions are often not built for collective action. It's an odd thing um, that institutions with so many people and in a world where the service we provide is so people, uh, so human heavy, uh, so, uh, so centered around the work of people that we often don't actually have very good ways of moving people in alignment with the change we seek to make. And so in many ways, that's the consulting work that, uh, that I really help institutions to do. How do we get as many people as possible aligned with what's in the best interest of the institution and moving in that direction? That's hard work. There's, there's a good reason why I have clients and why people need that help. It's very hard work, especially when leaders are also trying to run the day-to-day -day operations of the but that, that is in many ways, I think the big picture challenge that, that I try to help with. You have a great background for that. So um, I've, I have heard it said that moving a college or university from point A to point B is, is very much like trying to move an iceberg. <laughs> and I think you have described that uh, very, very well and very accurately. Uh, do you have a few from from your consulting and your lived experience in a in a college um, as both a faculty member and an administrator? So you've you've experienced the gamut of what it's like to uh, institute change and be on the receiving end of change. So um, are there some uh, tips or uh, as you think about successful change efforts that you've been a part of? What you know what what is what would you uh, how would you characterize them or how do you account for why they were more successful than other other efforts perhaps right um well let's see um you know some of these things i can i can speak in generalities about um and these are all much easier to say than they are to do but you know i spoke about alignment um as much as possible if if it's if communication and transparency and uh, kind of planning and forethought can allow us to share with an institution and its constituents the change we seek to make, the, um, the rationale behind that change, the places where we are open for that change to be molded and shaped and revised based on the ideas of you know, the folks uh, who will be participating in it, the more that work can be done in a thoughtful, intentional, and persistent way, the better. Um, 
And there are lots of examples of successful change, but they tend to be kind of located in pockets of institutions. Pictures of broad scale, fundamental business model or mission oriented change are harder to come by. And when we have those stories to tell, they're often stories of hardship. They're often stories of institutions that were in dire straits and had no choice but to fill in the blank. Um, and I really would encourage, this comes back in a way to at least the ideas um, and the, the motivation for the book. Leaders need to be thinking now about the change they want to see not tomorrow, I mean, yes, tomorrow, but maybe most importantly, five years and 10 years down the road, even if they aren't the leader to ultimately fully implement that change. Because the best success stories are ones of persistence and courage and intentionality and alignment. And, uh, you know, that, that work can be really gratifying to do, but as you say, it can feel sometimes glacially slow. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, so courage and optimism may also be uh, helpful tools in a leader's tool bag. Mm, boy, well taken. So I think you know that we have a signature question that we ask of every guest who comes on the, the show. Um, and so here is the question. I'm going to tweak it a little bit for you, though. So the, the question is, what needs to be on the radar of every college, university, and their leaders as we look to the next five to 10 years, in particular, if we are thinking about how to uh, design a, a sustainable future for our institution, what are those top really important things to have on the, have on the radar? It's a great question. Um, well, gosh, if the last year has taught us nothing, it will have taught us that designing the sustainable future means designing for change. And so, you know, if I'm a leader at an institution and I'm thinking about the next five to 10 years, I'm thinking about what are the hurdles? What are the barriers to change? And what are the facilitators on my campus for change? And it could be anything. It could be governance. It could be the people. It could be some really successful initiative that everybody is happy with that represented real change that could be sort of used as a, as a, a hallmark or a flag for the, the additional change that, that might be to come. But if I'm a leader, I'm thinking hard and really concretely about those facilitators and those barriers. And I would pay a special attention to governance. Because we have seen in the last year that there have been a lot of changes that had to happen right away. And frankly, on many campuses, they happened effectively around the governance structures. And I don't say that in any kind of judgmental way. That was necessity. Um, there was no time to appoint a faculty committee to take two years to look at whether we should go to distance learning, for example, um, which might have been what would have happened under normal circumstances. So um, thinking about what kinds of governance can be put in place so that leaders can genuinely work with their constituents, but in a way that doesn't presume that all 
change must be glacially slow uh, and that all change is necessarily bad. There is a lot of really wonderful and creative work to be done in higher ed to serve the many, many people in this country who need and benefit from higher ed. And the more options we can create for those students and the more engaged we can get the people on our campuses and helping us figure out what that looks like, the better off we are all going to be. It's great work to do. I think this needs to be your next book, perhaps. Hmm. Maybe you're already working on it, but uh, there's, there is a need for exactly what you are talking about. And you know, as you know, so much of the press has been focused on uh, the, the tensions and the ways in which change has been forced perhaps in a less than positive way. And as you say, necessarily perhaps, but, but I think what I'm hearing you say is maybe there's another way um, or other ways that need to be on the radar. Um, yeah. I, I do think that, and I, I will acknowledge that governance work, at least on the face of it, can sound not very sexy. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily sound like exciting work. It sounds wonky and bureaucratic. But um, anyone who has had to think about how to accomplish uh, important work of an institution around, through uh, difficult and Byzantine governance structures knows that uh, it is a really important, frankly, legacy to leave an institution to develop the governance structures and the culture that um, will serve the institution in what I suspect is going to be a continuing atmosphere of pretty rapid change. Susan, I'm gonna let that stand as your last word. That's so compelling. So thank you so, so very much for this opportunity. Um, your comments are so wise and insightful and I know our listeners are going to learn and take away a great deal from what you've shared today. So thank you for being with us. You're welcome, and it's, uh, it's been an enjoyable conversation. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm Melissa Morse-Holson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson, Marcy Moore, and Sequoia Cox. Ingenious You is a production of CHELUP, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash CHELUP for information about our upcoming professional development opportunities, including our blog and our Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education monthly webinar series. If you like what you hear on this podcast, be sure to review and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please do share Ingenious You with your friends and colleagues so that they too can join our community. In our next full-length episode, I speak with the highly accomplished leader, faculty member, speaker, author, and consultant, Dr. Mary Churchill. As a first-generation college student who describes herself as being from the pets or meat world, portrayed in Michael Moore's Flint, Michigan, Mary's professional trajectory was not entirely expected 
Serving currently as the Associate Dean for Strategic Initiatives and Community Engagement at the newly established Wheelock College of Education and Human Development at Boston University, Mary served just prior to this as the Vice President for Academic Affairs at Wheelock College in Boston, an institution she helped to merge. The merger between Wheelock College and Boston University is the focus of a new book co-authored by Mary and Wheelock's president, Dr. David Shard. In the book, When Colleges Close, Leading in a Time of Crisis, Mary and Dr. Shard describe the process of merging from beginning to end, as well as what they learned in the process. In our conversation, Mary walks us through the decision-making process leading up to the 2018 merger and shares her insights about the most essential questions to ask if a merger or a strategic partnership is on the radar for your institution. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.